I'm Peter Kimball, and this is Top New Filmmakers, where we introduce you to filmmakers you might not have heard of, but definitely should pay attention to. And today we're talking with writer, director, actor, Michael Gamarano Singleton. Michael is the writer and director of the new short film Denzel, that recently played at Slamdance. And we want to talk to him about uh, the process of making that, his opinions on film, his experience with film. We want to dive deep into the mind of Michael here. So, Michael, thank you for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to chat all things film. Great, great. Um, so just to start off, what, where are you from originally? So my background is my dad is English and my mum's Brazilian. Uh, my dad moved to Brazil when he was a young man and met my mum, had my sister, had me, and then when I was a baby, moved the family back to England. So I grew up, um, it's like maybe 30 miles north of Manchester. Most people know Manchester for like the football teams and stuff, but mm-hmm. that's where I grew up. But yeah, I have a, a background of um, Latin American as well. Okay. Did you go back and forth to, to Brazil much at all or, or just stay in England? Just stay in England. Um, my first time in Brazil was when I was 22. So that was the first time I went back um, just because uh, growing up, I didn't have a lot of money. And it was quite expensive to fly to Brazil. So it wasn't until um, yeah, I got a little bit older and the whole family went over. And I got to meet all my mum's side of the family for the first time, which was exciting. Oh, that's great. Um, so when you were a kid, so, you know, we're talking about film. What was your exposure to film as, as a child? Do you, do you remember favorite films? Do you remember your, was, was that something that was big in your family? So it was my mum. My dad is is strangely not into films at all. Like he he likes the older stuff, but he really has no interest in film. But my mum is the film buff, and she was the one who would take me, my brother, and my sister to the cinema. And I, I have a my one of my earliest memories is her taking me to see Jurassic Park. I think I must have been like five or six. Um, yeah, it was in '93. And I just remembered like being terrified, but being so amazed to see these like dinosaurs because we grew up loving dinosaurs and having all these like dinosaur figures and toys and stuff. And then you see these dinosaurs, which, you know, as a five-year-old, six-year-old just looks real. I just remember just being like, wow. And just I couldn't stop thinking about it for like years. And that was like my first experience of film was like Jurassic Park. And even today, it's still one of my favorite films. Like it still holds up as like an amazing film. And even the graphics, like the graphics, I know they redesigned it. Uh, um, but even now, it still looks good. Like it still holds. It really holds up. I, I just think Jurassic Park, you couldn't get more high concept than Jurassic Park, but mm-hmm. it just does it so well too. It, it's, it's both the most commercial movie you could think of and so well done. Yeah, I mean, obviously Spielberg is a genius. Um, but there was a Netflix show. Um, I don't know if you guys, you must get it over there, but it's how we make the movies or something like that. And they dive into um, how films are made. And they did one on Jurassic Park. And it was like so fascinating because originally they were going to do stop motion. And then these guys who were developing the CGI said, oh, can we try CGI? And they were like, no, you know, we're not going to do that. And they did it anyway behind the studio's back on their own will and somehow got Spielberg to see it. And then Spielberg was like, okay, yeah, forget stop motion. We're going to go with these guys instead. But it was so close to like, I mean, it would have been developed eventually anyway, but it was just so fascinating to see. And that, and also the, the used animatronics, maybe people don't realize that, but like when the Triceratops is like dying and they're, and they're lying on its belly, that's an animatronic. And I think that side of filmmaking has been lost. It's all CGI now. So it was a nice mixture of both. And I think like the animatronic sometimes looks more real because it is there. And, and I guess it must have been better for the actors to see as well. But I just, yeah, I absolutely adore that movie. It's definitely a big inspiration of mine. Yeah, I, th- I think with the, uh, I feel like one of the, and maybe the CGI is getting better, but I feel like one of the weakest points has been when you're, when you're mixing the human with the with the computer generated image, you know, mm-hmm. if we're if we're just seeing the dinosaurs run through the field on their own, that could just be totally computer generated and it looks fine. But the interaction between the person and the dinosaur, you get something by having it be uh, physically there, both with the actor and also um, with with the quality of the visual. I think that works really well. Yeah. Um... 
and on this like uh, behind the scenes thing they said the animatronic of the triceratops they didn't let the actors see it until right before they shoot so they could get their like real reactions whereas like cgi which of course it serves an amazing purpose would just probably be like a tennis ball but okay react to this tennis ball whereas <laughs> like the actors reacting to that was like a real reaction because they got to see what it looked like at, at, at the time like a real dinosaur and i just thought like you're never going to be able to recreate that. Wow. Um, so where did you go from? I don't know if there's a straight line from Jurassic Park to your interest in making films, but but how did that develop? Yeah. So obviously watching lots of films growing up, like I said, my mom would take me to the cinema. And then I got really interested in writing. I just I've always wanted to write as, as a kid and I would write lots of short stories and I would even, um, me and my brother, when we were younger, we used to have lots of like dinosaurs and figurines and stuff. And I would literally write stories for the figurines and we would play it out together and stuff. So there was always a passion of writing, um, like growing up as a teenager. And then where I grew up, unfortunately, there wasn't a lot of opportunities for filmmaking. There wasn't a filmmaking course. It wasn't really an acting course. But my other big passion was sport and I loved like playing sports. So when I finished school, I went to college. So we have school, college, university. We have like a three-tier thing. I know you guys have just school and college. So college is 16 to 18. I, I studied sport because filmmaking wasn't an opportunity for me. And I just was like, oh, I'd love to do film. So when I finished college at 18 and I wanted to go to university, which is your guys' at college, <laughs> I applied to every single film course in London. Because I, I was like, I want to go to London. I've never been to London and I want to... You know, I'm a, I love writing, I love film. And pretty much all of them said no. They said, oh, you don't have any experience at school or college um, with filmmaking. You only have sport. So I just thought, you know what, let me just give up and I'll go and do sport. And then maybe a few weeks before, I emailed one of the courses who sort of gave some sort of interest and was like, mm, we're not sure. And I was like, please, please, please let me do it. And they just gave me like a few assignments. Like I had to write a short story, which I already had loads on hand anyway. I think I had to do an analysis of a film and I had no idea what to do. So I got a friend who knew a lot about film, even more than me in technical terms. They did it for me. <laughs> and a week or a few days before I was going to go down to London to do sport, they accepted me. So I switched over to film production and that's what I did at London Met for three years. But it was so close to me not doing that. And for about a year, I was going to go down to uni and just do sport because I was like, oh, it's too difficult. It's too hard. I'm never going to do it. I don't have the experience. But eventually I went down and did it. So, um, yeah, it worked out. Well, that's great. Uh, and what, it, just my curiosity as a, as a, as a dumb American, but if, if you, if you study sport, what, what career does that go into? You, you, you get a degree and then you become a professional footballer. Is that how that works? <laughs> I wish. No, no. Um, it, it can go into a lot of things. So a lot of my um, friends went into teaching, specifically like a PE teacher. Okay. or um, coaching they went into like coaching um, sports some of them went into sports psychology some of them went into like um, physios so it, it's one of those things that can lead on to several things associated with sport apart from playing that would be amazing if you turn up to <laughs> United and say hey I have my degree can I can I join the team <laughs> they'd be like get out well and that's a you know that's a um, obviously that's not the way it works with sport in America, in my experience, that's not really the way it works with film either. I don't know if that's different in Britain, mm -hmm. but it, it, it's something that you do study in university or you can, you can go to film school and yet you, you come out of film school and your degree doesn't necessarily count for anything. Is, what's your experience been like with that? It's exactly the same. You can't just turn up to Warner Brothers and be like, hey, I've got my degree. I've got a first, you know, honors degree in film. They don't care. But it's more about, um, which I'm sure it's the same in America, of making contacts, making friends in the industry, um, giving you the tools. So when you do leave, you have a better understanding. But you absolutely don't need to go to university or, or college to, to study film. You can just start anywhere. You, it's just one of, the, one of the things about the creative industry. You can start at the bottom as a runner and work your way up. Um, or you can make your own films. But for me, it was a starting point of someone who knew nothing, just had a passion and knew nothing. And it was a, a tool for me to get out of my hometown in Preston near Manchester and come down to London with the big city where every, all the productions are 
and and made some friends but funnily enough most of them that I went to who was in my class aren't in film I'm one mm. of the few people who are still working in the industry that's interesting so with film school what would you say I mean so there's the meeting people although maybe not necessarily the best networking <laughs> if 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 no one is still in film what yeah. would you say that you got the most out of going to film school it, it was the um i guess the the drive and the push to make stuff you don't you don't necessarily need that but if you if you come down to london like i did and you know no one and you don't really know anything about film part of the course is to make films and they put you in groups you know so it would be me and 10 other students having to make a short film every term as you know you obviously do editing and you do working with actors and other modules and stuff but it was just that sort of like deadline and push to be like, you have to make a film. You have to make a film. So you, in the end, you make about four or five films throughout it. So when you leave, you, you have a good understanding of doing it. Whereas I don't know if I would necessarily make four or five films if I didn't go to the school. I mean, they're terrible. They're, they're terrible films. <laughs> and no one will ever see, the, see it ever. <laughs> They've been like burnt away. But it was a, you know, like filmmaking is you, you learn by doing. And if you were going to design a film school, if, if you were going to take what you did and, and improve it or change it, would, I mean, do you feel like what you did was just the best way that one can learn in a school setting? Or would you do anything differently if you were going to design a program? Yeah, um, I, I think, it, I mean, it's, I don't want to say anything bad about the school, of course, but maybe more experienced filmmakers teaching you rather than old school professors who maybe made films like years ago. So I think maybe more up to date, because for example, when we did our editing software, they had something called Avid. And like most filmmakers that I would know if I, you know, cause just through networking would be like, I haven't used Avid in years. This is going back. They'd be like, it's Final Cut Pro. And then you go up to the course and be like, oh, can we, change to Final Cut Pro because that's what I'll probably end up using. And they're like, no, we have to stick with this. So I think if they were just, a, again, it's just my personal course, if they're a bit more up to date with current um, filmmaking process and maybe had more like younger teachers who would come in and, and talk more about like independent film and stuff rather than just the same old school teachers. And I bet that's a challenge with a lot of film programs because the younger people are often busy making their own mm -hmm. films. And, and so sometimes it's something that you, you do later on. I mean, it's a challenge of how do you get people who are going to have the most up-to-date knowledge, but also have enough time to teach. Yeah. I remember one of the most useful classes we had was a, a couple of producers came in from a um, production company that had been making horror films. And they just talked to us for a few hours but the only reason they came is because one of the students in the in our class was working as an intern there and asked them to come in. So it wasn't actually the school who did it. But more of that, more of like working film and more of maybe me now going in. Maybe I should contact my school <laughs> and be like, hey, do you want me to come in and talk to the students about because we didn't get a good insight on like what we do when we leave and like how we can go about doing it and how you make short films. Whereas like I did it from just learning my own you know again it gave me the tools but we didn't have filmmakers who are actively making films come in and, and have a talk apart from those two producers which was one of the, the most useful chats i had there okay what one of the one of the things that i've seen sometimes with with film programs is there's a, so many people come in wanting to be a director but mm. often being i mean being a director takes so many skills but at the same time not as many concrete skills as some of the other specialties, you know, editing or cinematography mm -hmm. or sound. And sometimes if you focus too much on just the, you know, the idea of directing, you might come out of the program with nothing super marketable. Yeah. Um, did, do you feel like you came out uh, with specific skills that were helpful to you? Um, it, it's sort of um, a little bit of a tangent, maybe, but on our third and final year project, that's the one we get like the big marks for. Again, it's, it's sort of irrelevant because you, you don't really need the degree to work in film. We were put into a group of like 10 and then like three of us wanted to be the director. 
Um, whereas some of them were genuinely just like, you know, I, I really want to concentrate on cinematography, so I'm happy to do that. And the other one was, oh, I want to be an editor and so on. So some of, some people don't want to be directors because there's this idea that everyone goes to the filmmaker, wants to film school, wants to be a director. But some of them do stray off into the thing. The, the tricky part is sound. No one wanted to be the sound recorders mm -hmm. and stuff. So we had to just, you know, and eventually two of us were voted to do it. And I had to co-direct with another director which would be the first and last time I, I ever <laughs> do that. Because <laughs> directing is such a personal thing and it's just, you know, you need to be strong with your vision. But when someone else doesn't have that shared vision, it was just clashing and arguing and trying to compromise where it's like, I don't, I didn't want to compromise. But anyway, to answer the question, I was lucky that not everyone in our group wanted to be a director. So I got to direct a lot of the projects, mm. but some people in that course would have come out without any directing experience. And maybe because I am quite um, on sort of strong willed and, and will put my foot down, whereas maybe some of the shyer people didn't. So I think it is tricky. It is tricky because I'm, I was fortunate that I got to direct most of the short films where I know some people who wanted to direct didn't quite do it. Um, so I came out with skills of a director because I wasn't interested in any of the other subjects. I wasn't interested in being a cinematographer, or a sound designer or an editor. Or not. So I just wanted to be a director and that was it. Interesting. And I wonder if, I wonder if, and I think that that's a common uh, experience that that the people who are really advocating for themselves and and, and you know strong willed often are that's that's where you make things happen. I wonder mm -hmm. with people who are shyer or more reserved or or less willing to speak up for themselves. I wonder if are we missing something creatively because they're less likely to to get the chance to direct or. Yeah. Would they just not succeed as directors because that's an essential skill of directing? Potentially. And and looking back, it was quite selfish of me. And, and I was just, I want to be a director. I'm, you know, I'm not going to do anything else. Maybe they should have a system where they allow others to do it, you know, so it's not so much uh, a democratic. It's more of like, this one is your time. This time is your time. Because maybe I would have came out with more skills if I didn't always direct. Like um, I recently went into a drama school. Sometimes I teach and talk to actors, screen, uh, talking about screen work and work as a director with them. And they gave me a camera to work with. And it was like, okay, this is the camera. And it took me about half an hour to figure out how to work this damn camera. <laughs> because I'm literally one of those directors that's like, my DLP will deal with all that sort of stuff. I just did. Whereas maybe if I spent more time with cameras, I might actually know. I was literally like, I've never worked in film in my life. I was like, what does this button do? And they're like, how do I record? And I was just like, I should know this stuff. It took me so long to figure it out. It was so embarrassing. I've, I'm so not good with like technology. Like I have my visions and I'm, I've got my skills as a director, which you say, which is very strong willed. And, you know, I can, I'm good at telling people what to do. But when it comes to like the technical side, you know, sometimes the DLP will be like, um, do you want to go what aspect ratio and i'd be like go with what you think is best <laughs> you don't want to seem like you don't know what you're doing but i'm just like i trust you go with you and they're like okay cool cool i'm just like, i don't know like i genuinely i'm i'm, I'm not very clued up on the technical side uh-huh and uh, yeah that's um is that do you do you feel like that is just something that you're working on or do you feel like the answer is just surround yourself with people who know what they're doing or how have you navigated that? Yeah. Well, it's a mixture because, you know, there isn't the perfect director. Everyone's going to like, one of my special skills is working with actors. I, I acted for a little bit back in the day. So I know, I know how to get the best performance out of actors. I said, I'm good at like telling people what to do, but my weakest point is the tech side, like knowing what lens is going to be the best one. And I have, got better and I have tried to learn but it is just like I just trust the people that I hire because they are the experts they are the experts and stuff and I used to have a director mentor friend of mine and he would say when you're um, hiring people for your film make sure you are the least knowledgeable on that you don't want to hire people that you know more about that subject than they do so if I'm hiring a DLP I don't want to know more about the, the tech stuff or I'm hiring someone on sound because then they will elevate it to a new level. And you don't necessarily need to know all that. And, you know, of course, there's certain filmmakers like the famous ones like Stanley Kubrick, who will just do everything. He will 
be on on his camera he'll be in the edit room and that's fine but that's that's just not me I, I trust all the tech stuff to the people that I know and and that's their specialty and I'll just work on the stuff that I want to do I know what looks good I know the framings and the angles and the shots and then I just want to concentrate on the actors I don't want to have to think too much about um yeah what what lens are we going to use today and what lighting we're going to do I want to tell you what I want and I trust you enough to go along and do it okay um you mentioned uh acting was that mm. were you really pursuing acting as a goal was that just something you did in a couple projects what was what was your experience like with acting yeah it was my second year of film school and we were looking for actors and someone was like well do you want to be in it and i was just like yeah you know i, I can jump in and i jumped in front of the camera and I felt quite comfortable and I enjoyed it. And I was like, oh, you know, this is quite fun. And then I signed up just for a bit of extra money. I signed up to an extras agency where they just literally put you in the background of films and you start to talk to actors. And then before I know it, I signed up to a few of these like acting websites and started to audition for a few short films. So it started out as a little bit of fun. Like I'm, I always wanted to be a filmmaker. I've never wanted to be an actor. And like three or four years down the line, I've booked some jobs. I've... Um, I booked a, a theatre play when I was away for a year on tour. And then I'm off in LA and I got signed by an agent and I ended up got moving to LA for three years between 2012 and 2015, working as an actor and auditioning for big projects opposite The Rock and all this sort of stuff. Oh. And then it got to like the end of my three-year visa where I had the choice to like renew it or come back home. And I just thought like, I don't know, what, how did I fall into this like, acting thing? Like I never wanted to be an actor. I did it by that point. I've been doing it for about seven, eight years, and I did relatively well um, in a short, you know, space of time. And with um, the US, I mean, like most countries, I guess, like once you have a visa, it's very specific to that area. And my visa was specific to acting, and I just was missing filmmaking, like I did what I originally studied for. So if I renewed my visa, I wouldn't be allowed to work as a director in the US or in LA. I would only be allowed to be an actor, and that was it. So I had to make a decision. Do I give it another three years and do something that isn't necessarily my passion? Or do I come back home and come back to London, which obviously I did eventually. And I, I realized that I, I just no interest in acting. Even now, like I have no interest in being in front of the camera. My passion is directing and telling stories through filmmaking rather than through acting. So the experience taught me how, how actors work and the mindset of actors. And it's given me a good um, headspace of like, how to get the best performances it so it obviously worked out in the end but yeah it was a, a short um well not that short eight year stint of acting but i'm more than happy to just leave that behind and concentrate on the, my real passion which is filmmaking i mean that seems pretty successful even if that had been your uh your your, your goal so that's uh that i mean that seems like a lot of accomplishments there but um uh so this idea of Knowing how to talk to actors, knowing how to work with actors and coming, having this acting experience, what does that actually mean in more concrete terms? What is, how does that actually play out? Yeah. Um, one is just understanding that actors are quite vulnerable and they are, can be quite fragile and they do need reinforcement and that, and maybe directors will see it, the confidence side of the actor they don't realize there's you know a lot of vulnerability which makes them a good actor so if they're doing something well it's important to let them know and reinforce that for them and say look great take that's amazing and it's not so much about like sucking up to them it's just reinforcing what they're doing um another part of it is redirection with actors you can't just be like okay do it again but more you know that that's not helpful for mm. actors You've got to be super specific about what you want. And that's their job. They all know it, you know. So say if you're saying, okay, that the certain parts of that need more vulnerability, I want you to really tap into the vulnerability. Avoid pitfalls like, um, I can't remember the word now, but where you tell them how to say a line. It's just no actor. Like, line reading. Yeah, line reading. No actor wants you as a director to tell them how to say a line. That is not good directing or good working with actors because their job is to interpret that text. And that's why you've hired them. If you're like, no, say it like this, da, 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 they're going to be like, oh God, here we go. Like as an actor myself, that's what I mean. One of the experiences I know that that's not good as a director. 
So I would avoid any line reading. If I've got specific notes, I'll use like adjectives and emotions, you know, I say, okay, let's do it again, but, you know, have a little bit more anger at the end or have a little bit more vulnerability in the middle and allow that to come through into your natural um, anger or whatever it is. So it's just about understanding how to talk to actors, how to get the best performance of them, give them positive reinforcement. If it isn't working, don't just be like, oh, that's not working, that's not good because you're going to make them feel insecure and they're going to go inside themselves. You need to make them feel good. So if it's not quite working, you say, great, I really liked it. However, can we now try it like this? I think it's going to be just, you know, just for a second take, let's do something different and allow them to be themselves and be free. You hire actors based on their talent and their personality. So don't restrict them in their performances because you, you, they'll surprise you. They'll bring stuff out of your tapes and your... Um, your film that you probably didn't even think of but that's their job is they're bringing themselves to the role and if you restrict them then you you won't get as much out of them have you had any experiences with uh where you felt as a director that the actor just wasn't giving you what you wanted that you, you take you take after take you just weren't getting what you wanted and, and what did you do yes early on very early on however i learned how important the casting process is mm. and sometimes that can be overlooked by maybe younger directors the importance of casting and when I first made some films you know you you maybe do a self-tape or you maybe do one audition and that's it whereas like nowadays I'll go through a, a very um, long process where I can work with the actor get them to redo it several times and so on and so on so I know when it's on set they can do it I wouldn't ask, I, I would give them almost like the toughest scenes in the audition room. Because if I know they can do that, then the other stuff will be simpler and stuff. So I just spend longer in the um, audition process to make sure I've got the right people so that I don't suffer on set. Oh, that's smart. That is, that thinking ahead and, and putting in the time in casting probably makes everything better once you get to production. Yeah. Um, um, so there is a filmmaking that said, a filmmaker, and I, I need to find this quote, but he said like half the battle with making films is casting. Mm. Once you've got the right cast, it's so much easier. Because if you don't spend enough time, and, and casting directors, like I, I have a massive affinity and passion for casting directors. Their job is to know the best actors, the actors suitable for you. So spend a little bit extra money and hire an expert on casting and actors and get the right cast. Because if you just sort of put it out there on a random website and you get these random actors, it's not going to be the same as someone who has an in-depth, almost encyclopedia of actors. And I've always used the casting director for my films because they're the ones who are going to bring actors to me that I wouldn't necessarily know. Um, and yeah, and you have to trust their taste and stuff, but it is so important and, and it would be a... Um, piece of advice I'll give to young filmmakers is invest in your casting directors because it will elevate your film. And speaking of hiring people and investing, how do you fund the, the work that you do? How do you, how do you fund your films? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's obviously like the toughest part of filmmaking. I think most filmmakers, especially independent filmmakers is like, how do you get the money? It's difficult. The first few films was self-funded, saved up. And I thought I'm going to invest in myself and you obviously try and get people to work for a, a discount and hope. The latest film that I did was funded by um, private investors because they've seen my previous films. Like they saw Denzel and thankfully went on to get Oscar qualified and BAFTA qualified and so on. So one of the producers would go to, I, I thankfully it's not part of my job as the director, <laughs> because I'm still navigating that world, but I hired a producer who just went away and, and talked to people who were invest who were interested in investing in short films and showed my previous work and accolades and stuff, because it's a lot easier when you've, you've won awards and you've done quite well, because then people want to be associated. But the first few films where no one knew who I were or, or if it's going to be any good, it came from my pocket. It did come, and I, and I saw it as an investment in myself, just as... I spent the money in acting school or actors spend the money on classes. I spent my money and saved up to make a film to show people what I can do. And it's, it has fortunately paid off because the latest film I 
it was the first time I didn't have to spend any money on myself. Wow, that's great. That's great. So let's let's talk a little bit about. Uh, well, I'd love to hear more about what you're working on now. I don't know, but let's let's talk about Denzel a little. Um, so this is a great film, and I, uh, um, it's it's fun. It's touching. It's it's uh, unexpected. Uh, where did the idea come from? Yeah, there's so there's a um, a lot of dating shows that are happening at, at the moment, and there's one in England at the moment, which is a horrible name. I hate the name, but it's called The Undateables. But it's essentially a dating show about people with disabilities and how they're finding love. And um, I would watch this because it was so endearing and and so sweet, and it didn't feel staged and fake like a lot of the other dating shows. It was very real. Um, and there was two specific moments that happened. One of them, there was a guy who was autistic and he would get so nervous going on dates that his mum created these cue cards for him. So when he would be on the date, he would literally pull out, out of his pocket and it would be like, what's her name? And then he would look at her and, and say, what's your name? And I just thought, oh, that is so sweet and so endearing. And then there's another one. There was um, a guy with Down syndrome who went on a date and for some reason the girl didn't want to see him again. And he went home back to his dad at the time. And he just said, like, Dad, like, what's wrong with me? You know, is there something wrong with me? And his dad was like, no, you're, you're perfect as you are, which was one of the lines I put in the film. And between those two um, ideas, I thought, OK, I want to create a film around dating specifically for people with disabilities. Because another part of it is there's not a lot of opportunity for actors with disabilities. Um, I know we, we, me and you personally have discussed this in a lot at, at Slamdance. Um, so I really wanted to work with actors that don't necessarily have an opportunity to act because the roles are limited. So between all those, I was like, okay, I have a general idea of where I want it to go. And originally it was just going to be a guy with Down syndrome who goes on a date. But from an audience perspective, I thought, how can I make this more impactful than just a guy going on dates, which is how Denzel came about. It was creating an alter ego and it's only you know at the end when we start to reveal because i one of my favorite things you know m like Shyamalan and stuff mm-hmm. like six Sense. i love a reveal because it makes you want to go back and watch it again and see things that you missed the first time around and i love films that do that so that's just one of my personal you know goals as an as a filmmaker is, is to create a bit of a twist and give it a different perspective so with all those things in mind out comes dead as hell uh-huh um and how so how did you go about the casting process for for this film straight to my casting director friend um she's called Alyssa Rogers and she worked on Ted Lasso I don't know I think Ted Lasso is quite popular in in the US like a lot of Emmys she's worked on that she's worked on a lot of stuff is and she was my roommate at the time so (laughs) it's very very convenient that I lived next door to a, a casting director and I just gave her the script and she helped with all the casting. She helped find Jordan, who plays Daniel, and Ellie, who's the girl at the end. Carl, who plays um, Denzel, is actually a friend of mine. Because I, I, I told you I teach acting, so professional actors as well. So I knew him, but Alyssa knew him as well. And Carl is um, currently Alexander Hamilton in Hamilton. He's oh, like, wow. He's the Hamilton guy in London. Um, so I knew of his work and... It was at a time where we was in lockdown, so no Hamilton was going on. And he was just like, dude, like, you know, my theater show is off. Like, I want to do more film and TV. And I was like, well, you know, tape for this. And again, I got into tape a couple of times just to make sure that he can do it. And yeah, and, and that's how the casting. But most of it was through Alyssa, my uh, casting director, roommate at the time, and, and Carl. And with Carl, what... What were you looking for when you were casting him? Because that's a very, that's a very important role. Because uh, I mean, we spend most of the movie with him, mm. and but it's uh, he's playing a different person. Yeah. So, so what was your approach? What were you looking? I mean, maybe it was just you happened to know him. So you, but what, what, what was when in your mind? What was important that that person playing Denzel B. Yeah, well, I wanted to talk to Carl beforehand because what I didn't want is like a really bad stereotype impression of someone with a disability, you know, and I just was like, and he was on the same page. He was like, no, of course not. 
So I just said, you know, you just play it just as you are. Don't think about playing someone with a disability because, like, they don't think about playing someone with, you know, it's just we don't want any sort of, like, stereotypes. So we had to handle it very sensitively, for one. But the things I was looking for are likability. You know, we want to root for this person. So when it does hit you, it, like, hits you hard. And, and Carl is just naturally likable. And it's something maybe people don't think about, like, the likability of a character or an actor. Um, a sensitivity to them, um, a confidence to them, but an, an insecurity as well. So it's just looking for these sorts of details, which, you know, again, I, I, gave, I told him all this beforehand. I didn't want him to just go on tape. I was like, but these are a lot of the qualities. He went away and did it, and I, and I gave him another tape just to make sure he can um, take direction. Because usually in the room, you just do that there and then, but this was the pandemic, so we couldn't mm-hmm. audition him in the room. So I got him to do it again with a new direction because it's obviously a big part of auditioning and acting is, is to retake it. And he did it. He did it. We only saw like three people for that role. And when I wrote it, I had Carl in mind, actually. So it was just a lot easier for him. It was like the role was his to lose. <laughs> That's Yeah, I, I thought he did such a great job. And when you're making a film, and we have talked about this, you and I, but, but when you're making a film dealing with disability, um, how do you, I, I feel like a lot of people are, I, I feel like some films go astray in this regard, but I, I feel like a lot of other people are also uh, anxious about the idea of being exploitative instead yeah. of, instead of giving people an opportunity or telling a story that hasn't been told. How do you, how do you tread that line? Yeah, it is. Especially because I, I, I don't have downstream, you know, so it's not a personal experience for me. So you have to be sensitive with this. And like you said, it can't just be about it, someone with a disability because that for me just puts it into one box. And it's just about understanding that even just little things like don't just cast people just based on the disability. It's, it's a story about love and that's it. And it's a story about acceptance. So it's just finding a nice balance of creating opportunities, telling stories that most people wouldn't be able to tell, but not going down like a stereotype of like, this is what everyone with a disability would act like when it's like, it's not, it's, it's, it's just like anything or any story. It just happens to be someone with a disability, but it's not a disabled story. It's just everyday story. It's an every person's story. So it, it, for me, it was just like, it was important for me to tell a story, not just like a story about disabled people, do you know what I mean? It just happens to be about disabled, uh, as someone with Down syndrome, but it's not specific to that. It could have been anyone. It couldn't, everyone feels those feelings of acceptance and am I good enough and so on. And, and I, I, I told you I work with a lot of actors and we work with you know neurodiverse, um, hidden disabilities. I think I've, I might have told you, but like the girl at the, at the, um, in the first scene is deaf. And she would say she felt like it held her back. And she would be like, you know, I feel like because I'm deaf, I don't get a lot of roles because there's not a lot of roles for people who are deaf. And I was just like, but why does it have to be specific to that? Why can't it just be like any old person who also is deaf rather than you're deaf, so you have to have a deaf story? Do you know what I mean? And that's why I was like, it's important not just to have um, people like Jordan and stuff. I wanted people who have hidden disabilities as well because I just wanted to make a film that creates these opportunities for people. And I, I think it's, I think it's such an excellent film. And um, I wonder what, what kind of reaction have you had in terms of um, ha- have people said things, re- reviews, what, what, what have you heard back about how people are watching this? Well, I mean, the nicest thing is, is it said it made them cry. Um, and it's not like I'm making a film to make them cry, you know, that's not the, but it's, it's the fact that I've made something, you know, it's just relatively short, eight minutes and stuff where it's touched someone and it's made them feel something. And that is the essence of filmmaking for me. You know, my, my personal experience of filmmaking or um, preference isn't to make action films or Marvel films where a lot of fighting and violence and there's a lot of that in the England and that's fine and I'm not saying people who make those films are not good filmmakers there's a, a market for that but that's not me 
I watched films to feel emotions, to feel vulnerability, to, to feel empathy for characters. And if I can make a film where it's touched someone and emotionally and, and they feel empathetic about certain things, then that's a goal. So a common feedback would say, thanks, you made me cry. And I was like, great, I love that. Uh, and, and so talking about the kinds of projects, the kinds of films that you're interested in, what are you interested in or working on in the future? Yeah, some, a lot of my films are, are usually um, revolve around social issues. So like Denzel was obviously disability. My first film, which proper short film, was about homelessness. Um, and it tackled someone who was homeless. And my latest one, Swim, tackles homophobia. Um, the a brief outline of the film is two swimmers, end of the day, swimming, and it's told over several weeks and they develop a friendship. One of them is gay, the other one isn't, but at that time, it's fine, they're friends. And then the guy who's straight says, hey, look, um, me and my mates are going for a drink, you should come. And the guy who is gay turns up and he comes in, I wouldn't say drag, but quite a feminine outfit. And him and his friends all start laughing and making fun of him and he ends up losing the friendship. And, you know, the message is, is when he was in the pool in the same outfit, they were friends and they mm. built a friendship. But as soon as he saw his outfit and, and what he likes to wear outside, he suddenly had judgment on him. And it's like, why? Like, what does it matter? If you're friends with someone and you like that person, then why does it matter if he wants to wear heels or wants to wear like a blouse and stuff like it shouldn't matter. So that's the latest one is, is swim. And so it's all about like social issues and, um, that's, I guess, a remit of me as a filmmaker and the production companies is to make films that matter and, and can make people think and, um, yeah, give people um, insight into this world. Well, uh, that's a that's a great goal. That's uh, and it, it's great to have that uh, sort of focus. Uh, both having a clear focus in <laughs> at all to to think of this is the kind of film that I want to make, as opposed mm -hmm. to just you know, any which way the the wind blows, but uh, but also thinking about actually having a positive influence and in and raising these questions and issues. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask a, a few a few questions that I I like to ask. But um, what are your three favorite films? Ooh, well we've got one, Jurassic Park. Uh huh. Absolutely love Jurassic Park. Um, another one is Vanilla Sky by Cameron okay. Crowe um, because it's one of those films that has so much detail and it's and I've watched it so many times and I've found so many new things because it's sort of like a dream within a dream. I know that sounds like Inception, but <laughs> I love that film. And then the other one would probably be Big Fish by um, Tim Burton. Like that just makes me cry at the end. Um, you know, don't people have watched it, but it is so sad, but it's, Again, it's to do with that fantasy and reality, similar to um, Vanilla Sky, where sometimes you may not know what's going on, but there's sort of a twist at the end. And um, But it, at the heart of it is love. And that's it. Vanilla Sky, he wants to be with Penelope Cruz. It's love. And with Big Fish, he wants to have a relationship with his father. Um, Jurassic Park is just a, a separate thing. <laughs> it was like... The a relationship with dinosaurs. Yes, a relationship with T Rex would be the heart of that. <laughs> <laughs> That's it's interesting to as I as I talk to people, seeing uh, through lines in the, in the favorite films, sort of which, um, and I think it I think it sometimes it's very obvious. Jurassic Park, great movie that uh, mm. anybody anybody could say Jurassic Park, but I think it does say something about you as a person. Uh, not just which movies you enjoy, but which ones you're going to say are your favorite. I think that mm. says something about you. Yeah, no, it does. What do you actually end up watching the most? Um, I, I, I used to go to the cinema a lot. I used to watch every single film in the cinema. I love going to the movies, but um, I feel like post-pandemic have been a little bit slow to get out. So I guess it's... Um, what a lot of people do, which is like those TV series and those TV box sets. Um, I'm currently watching, oh, what's it called? 
is the one where it's about a, a TV network father um, and he sort of like has a heart attack at the start and the family are trying to trying to, to overtake. Oh, Succession. Succession, that's it. Currently watching Succession. So great TV. That um, Succession, Succession is so good. And that's, yeah. uh, and that's a nice uh, Anglo-American uh, hybrid there with a lot of yeah. the best of both. Have you noticed you lived and worked in the U.S. for, for several years? Did you notice a big difference between the U.S. and, and Britain in terms of um, film in terms of working the, the film industry or acting industry? Um, money, 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 way more money in, in America. You, you get 10 times more for jobs than you do in, in the UK, which is probably why a lot of UK actors all end up over there. <laughs> um, but for me, London is, is the heart of film for Europe. It's where, you know, a lot of productions, like even US productions, we have so many studios here that are made. So it's very similar. It's very similar. You know, maybe just LA, I'm, I'm not familiar with the New York scene. It's just a bigger scale. That's it. So more productions, more money. But there is a lot of things being made in the UK. It doesn't necessarily have to be filmed here. Some of them are filmed here, but some of them are. But the production offices are here. Same with LA. It's like... Not, not, nothing is ever filmed in LA anymore. <laughs> the cast and the producers are there and, you know, the studios are there. Then they go on to Atlanta or they go to Vancouver and film. Whereas, like, London would be the same. We have all the production offices and the casting studios and the actors are here. Then we fly them off to Serbia or, or, or Europe or Romania and we film over there because you get tax breaks and things like that. So not too much of a difference. It's London, LA, New York are probably the three, like, Film, film and TV captors of the world. Okay. Did did you did you do an American accent as you were acting in the US? <laughs> there was one time. So when I, I I'm not going to do it now because I'm way <laughs> out of practice and it would be awful. But part of the remit of going out there as an actor is most of the roles are American. You know, if you're only doing your own accent, you're going to limit yourself to a small pool, which would just be British roles in America. Where it's like, why would you want to limit yourself? So when I got there, my accent was probably like 90% there, but that 10% will cost you jobs, you know what I mean? So it needs to be 100% there. So I would legit be in the accent for like weeks at a time. And it drove my then girlfriend crazy. Because she'd be <laughs> like, stop talking with American accent. I'd be like, no, you stop talking with American accent. <laughs> And like I would stay in it, in it, just so I can really like immerse myself. I'd go to coffee shops and do it and do it. And then it got to the point when like I could just do it. Like it was just there. And I went to so I when I first got there, what I'd do is I'd do an American accent and then I'd switch to my British accent. And I'd be like, Oh, by the way, I'm British. I'm like, oh no way. Oh, cool. But you could see in their mind, they're like, Oh, we're not sure now because we need a real American. Mm-hmm. So I just was like, you know, I'm not even gonna tell them. And there was one particular commercial I went, I did the American accent. Got got the job, um, didn't tell them I was, I was British, got there and it was like a three-day commercial. And I was like, oh, well, I can't suddenly switch now. So I stayed in the accent for the full three days. And at the end of the shoot, I was in the uh, with the wardrobe people getting changed. And I switched to my British accent. I was like, oh, by the way, I'm not actually American, I'm British. And the wardrobe woman turned around and went, that's the worst British accent we've ever heard. Stop. <laughs> and I was just like, you know what? This not, and I went, yeah, you're right. And then just switch back. I was like, there's no point in me trying to convince them. They thought I was putting on a really bad British accent, but I was like, at least I know my American accent is good. So, um, yeah, I was pretty good at it. I was pretty good. Oh, good. Um, there's one one last uh, sort of wrapping up, but um, there's a there's a interview that Christoph Waltz, the, the actor, did where he was asked, uh, he was talking about, how for a long time in his career, he was just doing Austrian television and uh, that it seemed like that was what his career was going to be. And then eventually he made it over to the U.S. and won Oscars and and all that success and fame. And he was asked in this interview, were you satisfied with, were you happy with being on Austrian TV? Or did you always dream of coming to Hollywood and, and winning Oscars? And his answer was both, that... I was happy with what I was doing and I also still had bigger dreams. And so my question to you is what about 
what you're doing right now makes you happy, makes you feel fulfilled, and what would be your dreams down the road? Yeah. Well, I'm not Christoph Waltz. I, I want to just be in Hollywood. Like what I'm doing now. No, I'm joking. <laughs> um, I, filmmaking is filmmaking. What I've noticed is um, the latest film called Swim, the one I, I told you about, is has got a bigger budget. Um, bigger budgets are good in a way because you know you, you can get more free money and you can pay people and you can get well-known actors. But I have noticed I have less control over this film. Mm. So they have producers now who want to have their say about what's coming in and so on, which is which is fine. You know, I still have a, a relatively amount of control, of course. I, my producer, Chris, is great. But when it's small scale, it's just you, and you do it exactly what you want. So, like, my dream, like most filmmakers, is to make, you know, successful films. I don't necessarily want to be the Marvel director and all that sort of stuff, which I'm sure the money is great, so I don't want to say I'll never do it because who knows what's going to happen in the future. If they come calling, I'll probably say yes. Um, but I would love to make feature films with a, a good budget and a good amount of actors. But my concern is like the further you know along you go and the bigger the budget, does that mean it's going to be you know like more more money, more problems? <laughs> are certain actors are going to be thrown at me because you know they're already attached to the project or the agent or the the financiers' daughter needs to be in it and all this sort of stuff? But you know, again, you I'll deal with it as it comes. But like. I think what I need to realize is I I like having the control at the moment. And although the bigger budgets are going to come, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to equate to happiness. So I think as long as I'm making films and I'm not, it's not a stressful project or it's not something where I'm going to be like annoyed, then as long as I'm getting paid to make films, I'm happy. Uh, that's a great attitude to have. Uh, and I really look forward to seeing what, what you do in the future. Um, where can people find more about you? Where can they follow you? Where can they see your films? Yeah, Instagram. Um, so I, I'm mixing eight. So M I C K S I N G eight, and then we have a production company which is mixing M I X I N G productions, and that's on Twitter and Instagram. And you can keep up to date with the production company and keep up to date with me and my filmmaking. Well, great. Well, thank you so much for talking with me today. No, it's um, great. Thanks for having me. And that brings our episode to an end. Thank you for joining us. You can find out more links and information on the show notes or go to topnewfilmmakers.com where we'll have links, information, transcripts, whatever you want, you find it there. So thank you and come back next time where we'll be talking to more filmmakers that you might not have heard of, but should definitely pay attention to. I'm Peter Kimball. Thank you. <laughs>